Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. All right, here's a face we haven't seen in a while. Anxious to hear from her, Sarah Montalbano returns to the show. We actually had her on way back in the old radio show days before the current itineration. Thrilled to talk to her again. She is the Northwest Regional Leader for Young Voices. Uh, she's done her schooling over at Montana State. She's written all over the place, Wall Street Journal, Spectator, a bunch of other places. Sarah, great to have you back. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing well. How about you? I'm well. Now, her uh, bailiwick here is Alaska. Um, she does all kinds of research for Alaska Policy Forum. Y'all got a mess up there. Let's talk. Let's start big picture with this thing, though, because people, here's my thing. Lots of things sound good in theory. Ranked choice voting sounds great on paper. It's worked well in some places. It hasn't worked as well in other places. What's going on in Alaska? Because is the theory matching up with the practical when it comes to ranked choice voting? Definitely not. So we are in the midterm election um, mess. Uh, we got our ranked choice voting in a 2020 ballot initiative um, that passed by about 1%, which is, you know, 3,000 votes and change. Um, and so that implemented a unique in the nation top four primary system. So it's nonpartisan. It's what people like to call a jungle primary. Um, anybody from any party can come in. The top four advance to the um, to the general election. Uh, we were first expecting uh, our first test of ranked choice voting to be this November, uh, but due to Representative Don Young's death, uh, we've held a special election. Um, the I believe the uh, ranked choice portion. Uh, was completed on August 16th, but we're not going to find out the results until August 31st. So a full two weeks after the ranked choice voting, the primary was a disaster. There were 48 candidates on that ballot. It was enormous. Um, and the top four in that are Sarah Palin, uh, Nick Begich, uh, Al Gross, who dropped out uh, claiming it was too difficult to run as a nonpartisan candidate, and Mary Peltola, the Democrat candidate. Um, so there in this uh, August 16th ranked choice voting election, there were only three candidates instead of four, which threw an extra wrench in this already confusing process. And just for those of you that don't have your flowchart fully filled out just yet, they're actually running two elections for the exact same office at the exact same time because one is the to fill in for the rest of Don Young's term. And then there's the actual primary primary for the next term. And we're doing it at the same time with the exact same group of people. Anybody else confused yet? Yes. Yes. And what's more confusing is that on August 16th, the ranked choice special election and the primary election, which is choose one, 
both on the same ballot. You had to flip it over to look for the ranked choice portion. Um, so that in all to fill a, a seat for a few months uh, before the permanent um, or well, the general election is concluded in November. So it's it's been a real mess and it's been very difficult to understand uh, why we're going to so much trouble. Now, one thing that we have found out while we're waiting on these results that are supposed to come out next week, as the voting totals, just to really make this even messier, we now have the data. They're creeping up on record levels of voting here. Now, we know voting has been up the last two cycles. We know the voting in the special elections have been up. Uh, we know the 2020 election blew all the records out of the water. We expect 2022 and 2024 to do the same. Not only are you putting in a new system, not only is it confusing because of the way you're having to fill the seat. Because you know, Don, for those that don't know, Don Young, he was in. This is an institution. He had been there for forever since I think Alaska was almost a state. 50 years. Yeah, yeah, pretty much since Alaska. He's like the second guy to ever hold that office or something. I'm, I'm being a little facetious, but he'd been there for forever. Well respected. Everybody loved him. He was in that office till he died. That's happened. He's died. Now they're trying to fill it. Where do we even start with this? Because you got the ballots. You've got this. Now, on top of all the mess of it, you've got record voting turnout on a system that even the people doing the system don't seem to know what to do with. This looked like a recipe for disaster. You're there. You're on the ground. Is it as big a disaster as it looks like it is? It seems like it's confused a lot of people. And I think ranked choice voting really advantages the people with the time, energy, and interest to rank a bunch of candidates. Um, and then I think it also has a lot of problems for people like my father who, you know, they would rather just pick one candidate and the rest are unacceptable. They don't have preferences between the rest of them. Um, so that's, I think, something of, of a philosophic point um, is, is that we just can't treat this like you know, I'd prefer vanilla ice cream to chocolate ice cream to strawberry ice cream. It's not that kind of ranking um, necessarily. So I, th I think it's confused a lot of people. There are so many questions about the system that uh, the Division of Elections has en um, endeavored on a bunch of education efforts that haven't been entirely successful. Um, yeah, so it's it's been really difficult. I don't know how to explain the voter turnout, except that it's on the same ballot as the primary election for November. So it was easy to see a large group of people who didn't vote in the special primary uh, who are voting in the special general, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Let's talk about the practical, though, because uh, sure. somewhere our friend Guinea Coulter, we're going to try to get her on our election expert. She runs polls. Her thing has always been, you've got to have a ballot that's understandable. I'm old enough to remember hanging chads in the 2000 election. My first election was 98. That was my first presidential election. Hanging chads and is it fully punched out and then all that. This is not a new problem to have impractical ballots. But when you have, like you said, you had to flip the ballot over for the other really, really important part of this thing. You have 40 some people on one ballot. So people are just basically going to go look for the name they want, hit it and move on, even though they're supposed to fill it out further. I understand the idea of ranked choice voting. I think it's good. I think the implement implementation here, like you said, the education hadn't caught up yet. The people, is it fair to say the folks just weren't quite ready for it, even if they liked the idea? It doesn't seem like this was well enacted and folks weren't ready for it. I think so. And I think the fact that the special election came earlier than we were expected, it cut, you know, three months off of education time uh, for the division of elections. So that's, I think, certainly a factor. Um, 
Yeah, and I mean, the primary ballots are huge because you get anybody who wants to be on the field uh, throwing their name in and getting, you know, a handful of votes. Um, so asking people to think carefully about each of these candidates is going to be kind of a pipe dream. Um, and, and you know, people will gravitate towards the people either they've always voted for or that they know are staunch you know, supporters of their party. Uh, I don't think it necessarily adds to more choice. It just adds to more paperwork. Is it fair to say that part of the problem, whether it's ranked choice voting or traditional voting or mail-in ballots, or, you know, they're they're going to continue to try to push online voting in some shape or fashion going forward. That's just inevitable. No matter what kind of voting you're talking about, isn't it like a lot of policies that if you don't take into account human nature and you don't take into account, you know, the lowest denominator of who's paying attention and who's doing the voting, no matter how great the system is, it's not going to work if you don't plan it that way and you don't have practical ways for folks to execute it. And I think you're seeing that in Alaska here where you have, you know, geographically a huge state, population-wise, a very concentrated population. This, this is a place where ranked choice voting probably should work. What should we take away from the fact that it's so far a disaster? That's interesting. I think what we're seeing in Alaska is the fact that a slim majority of, of voters wanted this system. And I think the rest are feeling very demoralized. I think one of the other lessons of ranked choice voting, this special election has been the least focused on policy that I can remember. It has been driven almost entirely by name recognition. We've got the big player, Sarah Palin, of course, everybody knows her, uh, Nick Begich, who, uh, is well known because of the rest of the Begich family who have all been Democrats. So he's a little hurt by being a Republican in that family. Um, and then Al Gross, who was the third place contender, he was well known from uh, his challenge to Dan Sullivan in 2020. Uh, we're not seeing any real debate over policy issues and we're not seeing the parties internally hash out what their platforms are going to be. Um, you know, if if we were in a choose one system, we would have Sarah Palin and Nick Begich duking it out over uh, policy, but that hasn't happened due to ranked choice voting. And uh, <laughs> you brought it up, so let's just go ahead and talk about the race. Um, Peltola, Mary Peltola is the beneficiary of the two of them not matching up. But again, it's ranked choice voting, so that whoever, you would assume that whoever has Palin one would have Nick two and vice versa. But Palin's a different character she was the governor of alaska for people that don't remember she quit and resigned from the governor of alaska to go and do other things before her term was up some time has passed here it's a different environment now she's a different kind of candidate than she was when she was john mccain's running mate and the governor of alaska Definitely. what i know the national narrative i know what i think from having been there the first rodeo with sarah palin yes. what do alaskans actually think about her especially Republicans, but the why, because, you know, it's still a, a Republican state in a lot of ways. What do they say about her? What are they thinking about her? 
Yeah, I had an interesting conversation um, about this. And before I saw the primary results, I would have said that most Alaskans still have a chip on her, their shoulder about Sarah Palin because she quit the governorship. Um, whether that was justified or not, we don't want to have somebody that's going to quit. Um, and that would have been my answer. She got first place in the primary election. Um, and that, that was really interesting to me. I think Alaskans generally are concerned though that she's going to be another MAGA all the way candidate who's not going to do any of the really effective things that Don Young did for the state. Don Young was willing to reach across the aisle and actually bring home pork projects for Alaska. Um, and so whether that's good or bad, that's something Alaskans are often looking for, uh, for someone who's gonna really watch out for our energy interests um, forestry, fishing, those kind of things. And I feel like a lot of Alaskans know that she's going to use her seat as a publicity platform. That's what I think. <laughs> and for those that don't know, Alaskans have some things that we don't have in the lower 48. Don Young was there because he was there long enough. Y'all get your check once a year. Uh, yes. you get stuff, <laughs> you get stuff like that. Um, Alaska has a lot of policy. We've had you on before about policy, especially land use policies. You know, there's always going to be debate over the North Slope, the the oil and gas industry up there. Of course, tourism is a big factor for Alaska. Um, Y'all have a corner on reality shows. What do you think the lower 48 doesn't get about Alaskans politics, either the cultural side of politics? Because like you said, this has been more of a cultural side election than a policy election. Or on the policy side, either. What is it that the lower 48, because everybody always says it's just different there. It's just different there. Same thing when I talk about West Virginia. Look, it's different. I can't explain to you. It's just different. Explain it to us. It's just different. But what's different this time with the populism, I should say, the cultural aspect of this election? Why does this feel so different on top of the ranked choice voting stuff? That's an interesting question. I think a lot of it is... Alaska's local elections are mostly dominated or well local politics in general are dominated by the issue of the permanent fund dividend and what Alaska should do with the nest egg that we've got um, and how much should be paid each year. It takes a ridiculous amount of time in every legislative session uh, that doesn't get put toward other policy things. Um, so the local level, I think, is not as effective as it could be. Um, and then this race, as we start to fill this, we are looking at a huge gap where Don Young left. Um, as, as you said, he was here for almost the lifetime of the state. Um, he was Uncle Don, you know, in a lot of ways. So it's, we are looking for someone who can fill that enormous um, gap that he's left. Someone who can kind of continue on in his spirit of, trying to be cooperative when possible, uh, because Alaska often gets targeted by environmental groups and environmental policy because um, we are the epicenter of so many projects. Uh, Anwar, uh, the North Slope, uh, the Pebble Mine, there's, there's so many things that affect only Alaskans very intimately that everybody in the nation has an opinion about. 
Plus, you can see Russia from there. But we'll talk about that some other time. <laughs> uh, Sarah Bondabon will join us. Going to take a quick break. When we come back. Uh, it wasn't just the House race, and it's not just Sarah Palin. Big names, big important races up in Alaska. We'll continue to talk about that. Our good friend Sarah Montebano, our Alaska expert on Herdtel, continuing right after the break. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Uh, welcome back to her tell. Having a good time talking to our friend Sarah Montebolano, catching up with her. Been a while since we've had her on. We'll try to be, make it not so long next time. Okay, it's not just the Sarah Palin double election for the same seat twice at one time, which I don't think that's ever happened before in American history. We'll have to look into that. The Senate rate, Lisa Murkowski, she is an enigma inside of a riddle stuffed in a Manushka doll that sits up on multiple shelves that are hidden behind a bookcase that you pull the book to open up. Nobody can quite figure her out in Alaska, except she's like the dude. She just abides. Like she's just kind of there. She's always going to be there. I'm looking at the polling data from the top two. looks like she's going to be there again. What's the deal with her? Cause she's, she's, she's kind of heterodox. She's not fully conservative. She's conservative on most of the important things, but she does break. She's one of those that's every time we have a Supreme court justice or something bipartisan, her name's always in that mix. Trump doesn't like her, but she seems to be kind of impenetrable to his criticism. You're an Alaskan. We're not. You explain it to me. Uh, Lisa Murkowski. All right. That's a big topic. Um, And what I would have to say first is that Lisa Murkowski is going to be enormously advantaged by this ranked choice voting situation. Uh, She, in the primary, um, because we get those results back because they're choose one, um, so we have that from August 16th, and she polled almost 45%. Um, her nearest challenger is Kelly Chewbacca. I really hope I'm saying that correctly. Um, and she got 39%. She's the challenger that Trump endorsed. Um, and, and she's, you know, got a really strong following among Republicans. Um, but every Democrat who's going to be voting in the ranked choice election is going to recognize that Murkowski is a really important swing vote for them. Um, And that, you know, if a Democrat doesn't have a chance of winning this entirely through their first choice votes, uh, that they might as well give their second choice to Murkowski. So I think it's pretty inevitable. Murkowski is going to stay a fixture in Alaska, Alaska politics. Now, there was a lot of rumors that if this uh, ranked choice voting hadn't gone through, she may have switched independent to avoid that primary. That that was chatter from her own folks, not just that's not just speculation. You really think this bailed her not only bailed her out, but kept her in the Republican Party perversely enough, uh, you know, like Ray Yane, that kind of ironic, ain't it? Yes. Yes. And and the one thing I would note is on these ballots, um, the party designation next to the name is what the person is registered to vote as. It's not, you know, an an endorsement by the party. It's nothing like that. So Lisa Murkowski can say, look, I've 
I'm a registered Republican. She could choose not to vote for any Republicans in any election, but as long as she's registered to vote Republican and R shows up next to her name. Um, so that's one part of the, the system that I do feel advantages her. And then the strategy of it um, just makes sense uh, because, you know, first of all, if, if she has a lot of first choice votes, that's probably a reflection of people who really approve of her time in Congress. Uh, but there's going to be, first of all, um, Republicans who put uh, Kelly first and Murkowski second and say, well, I'd rather have a Republican than any of the Democrats on the ballot. And then conversely, we also have um, voters who put Democrats first and then put Murkowski in their second choice. Um, so Murkowski, I feel like really can't lose necessarily. And she doesn't need the endorsement of the Alaska Republican Party to do well. She can point to her record and say, look, you know, Democrats, you should have me because I'm a valuable swing vote. Um, Republicans, I'm still better than most of the Democrats. It's interesting you bring up the designation, uh, talking to Sarah Montabano. Yeah. The party the party is on the ballot, but it's the way you're saying it. It's just their affiliation because the party doesn't have anything to do with the ranked choice system, unlike a primary. In the governor's race, you have a little bit of an interesting thing where Mike Dunleavy's kind of running away and hiding with this thing. But second mm -hmm. place slipped to Bill Walker, who is listed as a nonpartisan. And then Lescara, the Democrat, right? I mean, they're, they're within a couple hundred votes of each other, but nonpartisan slide up to number two. That's what the ranked choice folks that advocate is like, ah, there you go. Look there. See what happened? Somebody not in the, the duality got in there. Do you mm -hmm. take that as a positive sign? Is that an outlier? How did that land? Because it, it was noticeable. Yes, that's something that made me very skeptical when Al Gross said, well, it's just too hard to run as a nonpartisan candidate, um, because that really shouldn't be the case necessarily. Um, I think a lot of nonpartisan candidates end up caucusing with Democrats anyway, most of the time. Um, so that I don't know if that's an Alaska phenomena or just in general. Um, but that's something I've noticed, too. Bill Walker um, actually won governor uh, as an independent uh, a few years ago. I forget exactly when, but a lot of people were unhappy with him because I think he ran initially as a Republican or a Democrat, I forget, and then switched to independent so that he could be in the general election because he lost his primary. Um, so that's something this jungle primary eliminates. You don't have to go through the primary process with uh, your party. You can just put your name on the ballot as an independent or a nonpartisan candidate and still get a really strong performance. To be fair, though, Gross is just kind of a weird human being in general, right? Because this is what he the is, second or third yeah. time he's run for statewide office. He's just a different kind of cat, not even a bad way. He's just different, isn't he? For folks that don't yeah. know, just explain him for a minute because he made a lot of he he made a nice hard run at it in 2020. He, he didn't embarrass himself electorally, but he is kind of a strange dude. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think he's an orthopedic surgeon. Um, I, I don't know too much about him, but I do. I I'm really baffled that he dropped out of this special election because quite frankly, he handed it to Mary because he said, look, I'm dropping out. It's too hard to run as a nonpartisan. I give my full endorsement to the Democrat in this race. And now she's running away with it. She's got 30, almost 39%, while Sarah Palin's coming in second with about 31%. Uh, and we're not going to know for sure until August 31st, but I would bet she's going to be our temporary for a few months um, representative. Um, so that was really an interesting wrench in the system.
And that will be the rare blue flipped uh, seat in this uh, midterm, probably. Uh, let's go back big picture to kind of round this back off. Obviously, Alaska is unique. Obviously, the ranked choice voting is something that's getting pushed in other places. Give us a pros and cons list because you've been through it. You've actually done it now. You're sitting here waiting. The People complain about a couple hours waiting on a call or the next day call. Y'all are waiting three weeks almost. Yes. Give me a couple good things and give me a couple bad things from somebody who's actually going through it now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a couple bad things come to mind first. Um, firstly, it's so, so confusing. Um, I think a lot of people are advantaged by the fact that they have the time, energy, you know, interest, whatever, uh, to look through these massive primary lists and then to really consider their ranking. Um, another disadvantage of ranked choice voting I see is the p potentiality for mistakes, not just, you know, simple things that would happen uh, in any scenario where you're, you know, you forget to witness a ballot or you don't fill in your bubble practically. Um, there are so many ways where you can mess up a ranking and invalidate part of your vote or all of your vote. Um, and then one of the last things I will say, I could go on for a very long time about what I don't think is right with this system. Uh, but the last thing I will say is that people who vote the way they always have by picking their top preference and leaving no, no other people, um, they are essentially forfeiting their right to be in an instant runoff, um, which is what ranked choice voting proponents say, well, we don't have to do runoff elections if we just have people rank their votes um, right up front. Um, but people who who only put a first choice preference, uh, if that candidate's eliminated, their ballot's exhausted. They don't have any say in the final choice, uh, which is particularly concerning for me. The one thing I do have to say has surprised me are the nonpartisan candidates who are really making it up there. Uh, like you said, I am curious to see how it goes, uh, especially if we get some really unknown nonpartisan candidates, because I think the people we've seen so far have made their fame already in earlier races that were not totally successful, um, or in, in orderly politics like Bill Walker. Um, so we we definitely see some nonpartisan candidates where we probably wouldn't have before. Uh, Sarah Montalbano talking a little bit Alaska ranked choice voting. We'll have you back. We'll talk about this when this gets wrapped up. Uh, we'll see if Sarah Palin makes a comeback or if that seat really does go blue. It kind of looks that way. Looks like Lisa Mikowski is going to hang around for a while. One thing you can never say about Alaska's politics, it's a lot like the rest of the state. You're never bored. There's always never. something going on and there's always going to be a storm in just a minute if you hang around for a second. Exactly. Uh, what a wonderful state. Uh, would love to get back up there. Uh, Sarah Montabano, let folks know where they can follow you, what you got going on. You're one of these regional leaders. That makes you real important. I think that ranks you over top of me, actually. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how that happened. But anyway, let folks know where they can follow you and what you have going on in the meantime until we get you back on Hertel again. Yeah, so you can find my work on the alaskapolicyforum.org website. I really encourage you to look for me there, or you can find me on Twitter or Facebook. Yep, her Twitter handle is right there on the side of the screen. If you're watching on YouTube, which I know you are because you're subscribed, right? Uh, Sarah Monteblano. Yeah, see? <laughs> That's why she's a regional director. Sarah Monteblano, you do great work, my friend. We'll talk real soon. Thanks for the time. Appreciate it, ma'am. Thank you. Yes, ma'am.
Ah, uh, welcome back to Hertel. You ever hear the old joke about folks with two first names? He's got two last names, but he's a good friend of the program. He's been here before. Happy to have him back. Cooper Conway is rejoining us. Going to talk a little education with him. How have you been, sir? I am doing fantastic, enjoying my summer, and I hope that you are doing the same. I'm glad to be back. Yeah, well, if you got kids like me, summer's over next week because we got school and football starting. So, uh, in fact, they're doing band practice right now. So, some everybody's like, summer's not over. Like, if you got kids, summer's over. Sorry to break it to you. Uh, let's talk some uh, education. We talked this topic with you before, but you take a different point. Um, part of the private school experience in America traditionally has always been through uh, religious education, church schools. Let's start big picture, though, before we delve into specifics here. This has a long tradition in America. People may not realize Harvard, Yale, those were all started as church schools. Um, churches, most in small town America throughout the early 17th, 18th, 19th century, usually the church and the school is the same building a lot of times because that's the only place you could have for such things. Um, there's a long tradition here. We understand it's changed. What has changed? What part of that tradition applies now? What part of it doesn't before we get into the specifics of what's going on now? Because we got to know where we've been to really talk about where we're going, right? Yeah, I would say that the school started off um, definitely more Protestant as more immigrants came into the country. That started to change um, to the point where now our uh, our public schools are now um, secular. However, um, they are not value neutral by any means. And so now you're seeing debates um, happening between parents all over the country in terms of what values we want to instill in our children. And for me, I think that this is um, something that we do. It's going to take a long time to work through, but that school choice is a way that we can ease the tensions on um, these curriculum dates, debates, these culture wars, if you will. Um, and I think that right now the church has an opportunity with recent um, SCOTUS rulings to step into this um, space and the, into the education sector like they haven't been able to do in a long time and um, help out some families. Now, let's do some nomenclature real quick for folks, because you said the church. The problem with is even among let's even take a small slice of let's even take a small slice, just say conservative evangelical voters, because that's kind of what we're dealing with here. Right. Even amongst that, you're talking dozens of denominations. You're talking about, you know, untold amount of different traditions when it comes to schooling, traditions, standards of dress, standards of worship. This is not a monolith, even though they kind of vote together as a group and they have shared values. Go through the nomenclature real quick, especially for the Protestants, because, you know, Catholic school is probably pretty much a Catholic school. You know, Jewish school is going to be pretty uniform, although you have ultra Orthodox and things like this. Um, I'm sure our Muslim friends have the same problems, but you can't just say the church, can you? Because it gets even more complicated just doing that, doesn't it? Yeah, we could go into the different intricacies of the belief system of the, um, of the I guess you could say, Christian right. Um, that could be a whole other podcast. We could make a movie or a book. We could write a book on it if you really want to. Uh, I'm just going to say the church generally can step up. Um, it doesn't matter. I'm fine with whatever those beliefs may be. Um, say it's, a, it's, like you said, a Jewish school or a Catholic school, uh, Protestant, evangelical, um, whatever that may be. I think there's a newfound opportunity because of the different types of schooling um, that's being created because of the pandemic, where before we would have thought of private schools um, as just kind of like a public school, but with some kind of religious values. Um, but now we have the opportunity to use um, the churches can step into the sector and create micro schools or learning pods or help with hybrid homeschooling um, and using some of their um, some of the, the help that they have in that community um, to help the children in that community in their church or even outside of their church as well. Now we saw some of this, you brought up the, the uh, pandemic. 
nothing happens in a vacuum. It happens in a sequence. Education forever changed during the pandemic. I don't think people realize this yet because not just the parents, the students got taught something. They got taught their cogs in a wheel now. We mm-hmm. saw a lot of this, people trying pods, people trying uh, micro schools, people trying different things. Uh, we know from the numbers, private schools, uh, religious and otherwise, the enrollments went up in a lot of areas. We've got a little bit of space now. Has those trends continued or do you think they've eased off? And do you think the issues raised during COVID are continuing or are they starting to abate a little bit? Yeah, those trends are really continuing. Uh, I'm not for sure the numbers on in terms of private um, religious schools particularly, but I can tell you right now that a lot of um, public schools, especially inner city public schools, are having their enrollment decline um, at a rapid pace. And I think this isn't necessarily, it's just because parents for the first time because of the pandemic have seen that there's other options that they can take advantage of. And people do really like their public schools. Gallup has been doing polling um, for the past two decades on how parents feel about their eldest child's education. And those numbers have never um, dipped below 67% in terms of their satisfaction, which is really high numbers. Um, And even Ed Choice had a recent poll where it said, if uh, the money and the travel wasn't an issue, what would be your first choice? And parents still um, chose public schools pretty overwhelmingly as their first choice at like 41%. Then private schools was around 30 um, to 40% as well. And it kind of just went down the line with the different types of education uh, models that are now available. However, parents do know that those other education options are available. And so they're going to continue to try and take advantage of those, especially if they feel like their child isn't being served um, to their highest uh, capabilities in the public school. Um, Cooper Conway joining us, talking a little education as he is wont to do when he makes appearances. Let's be real here. Okay, part of what happened during the pandemic was and this is both a uh, slam and a uh, cautionary tale. Let's just be honest. This is the first time a lot of parents paid attention to what their kids were doing in schools because they're online. So now all of a sudden they can see the teachers. They can see the curriculum. They're actually got it in their face and they've got to deal with it. That's to their shame if they weren't involved before that. But it is what it is. That's the first time that a lot of parents really saw what was going on in schools. That's an enormous factor in the things you just talked about, though, isn't it? That it's just the awareness changed, the information level changed, and that's what's driving a lot of this reaction, isn't it? It is a, it's a factor. It's so large. I don't even think I can um, understand it if I tried. And I, and I want to tell you, the first time that I really saw this happen was I was um, interning for a local think tank in Oregon at the beginning of 2020, and uh, Oregon's governor shut down the public schools and said that the public schools will transition to an online format. However, the public schools had a little bit of trouble transitioning while the online public charter schools already had the infrastructure in place. And so many parents immediately transferred over into these online public charter schools. However, there's this kind of this arbitrary cap where only 3% of the students um, per district can transfer into these schools, right? And so a lot of families um, hit the cap and they realized they couldn't get into these schools. And so they Um, sent letters to the state legislature trying to overturn this cap to allow their children to be able to go to school with some type of online infrastructure available instead of just kind of um, twiddling their thumbs at home, if you will. And it took only one letter from the teachers union to really just shut down this idea. The parents weren't able to transfer um, their students into public online charter schools um, that are free, open, and available to all. And uh, I know that online schooling isn't the um, the answer for most children, but it was still something, it was something 
compared to nothing that they were being offered at the moment. And so parents said, well, maybe we are just kind of a number. And uh, they, they started saying that the public schools may not be on their side as they previously thought they were. Here's the argument that you're going to hear pushed against this. I know you've dealt with this because I've seen you do other media where you feel this, but we need to address it because it's a fair point to make. Yeah. The argument that comes from uh, the education folks that are very pro-public school. And by the way, I'm not anti-public school. I just want them to be better. And if you love something, you hold it accountable. I need We need accountability in public school. The argument is whether it's a charter school, public or private, or a private church school, uh, the enrollments are dropping. Funding is tied to enrollment. So every time they drop an enrollment, public schools lose funding. So vis-a-vis, every time somebody goes to these charter schools, we're hurting the public schools. That's the argument. There is validity to the argument, but how do we address that if you're going to be for school choice? Yeah. Well, the, if you're for school choice, you should always ask the question. Um, school choice shouldn't be a problem for any public school at all. If the public school is serving that child um, perfectly, right? And the child doesn't think that there's a better option out there. However, we have introduced competition into the market. And so if a parent and their um, a parent and guardian of the child think that thinks that there's a better option, they're going to take it. However, once these private school choice programs are put into place, in 25 of 28 studies, the public school students' test scores actually go up uh, because of the competition is what is theorized. Um, also, the students who are able to access these private school choice programs, their test scores go up. But we know that school uh, that test scores aren't necessarily um, the only thing that parents are looking for. Um, also, there's been uh, shown to be higher perceptions of safety from these parents. There's higher civic values once these school choice programs are implemented. Students go on to graduate high school and college at higher levels as well. Um, and so really, it's kind of the rising tide that lifts all boats because competition is making everyone to be better because they do want to hold on to these dollars. Yeah. Cooper Conway joining us. We're going to dig into this a little bit more. He's got a piece out of American Conservative. We're going to dig into that. Got some interesting numbers in here, especially when it comes to test scores, civic literature civic literacy, which I could say if I had proper civic training, sorry, dad, uh, perceived safety and other issues. We're going to dig into this a little bit. I'm going to work on my pronunciation. He's going to bring the knowledge. Cooper Conway continuing on her tell right after this. Back to Herd Tell, Cooper Conway joining us, having a great conversation offline. We had to hit the record button, get back online because I enjoy talking to my friend. All right. There's some specifics into education we just have to deal with here. here. Here's a problem. We do this with the gun debate, abortion debate, pick any hot button issue we have. We want to talk about it in a vacuum like nothing else around it ever affects it. We talk about culture wars things this way like nothing else around affects it. If you have school-aged children and you're a family with school-aged children, that dominates your life. Like everything in your life revolves around your school-aged children. It just does if you're a halfway decent parent anyway. Here's the problem, and you touch on it. When you're dealing with things like test scores, you're dealing with things like educational attainment, you're dealing with things like school safety, amount of effects and social things that go into them that doesn't actually show up on a test score or a funding spreadsheet. How do we have a better big picture view of these things? Because I think part of the problem with school choice is we start pitting people against each other that really shouldn't be against each other because they can't get the bigger picture that they're not adversaries at all. Is that a fair way to frame this? Because I think we put these down in the silo holes 
And then we just want to shoot intercontinental ballistic missiles at each other, like the Russians and the U.S. back in the Cold War. And it's mutually assured destruction. And there's nothing in the middle. There's a lot of middle here, isn't there? Yeah, there is a lot of middle. Um, the thing about school choice is that it's wildly popular. Um, the polling on it recently has been um, around 70 percent. And that crosses partisan, um, racial and ethnic lines. And but the thing is, they're also, you know, teachers are seen, teachers unions, I should say, are seen as kind of this adversarial force um, against the, the school choice movement. But to, the teachers themselves, we are on the side of. Um, I come from, uh, my dad was a private school teacher and a public school teacher. My grandparents were public school teachers. And so really, we're trying to create this broad coalition um, that is able to advance an education reform that should, um, that's not a panacea, it's not a silver, uh, it's not a silver bullet, but it should have substantial increases for the individual child and that's what we're going for because not every school is going to be perfect for a kid and the one-size-fits-all um, approach that we've been taking with the public school system um, just hasn't been working out as well as we thought it would we have increased funding by 150 percent since 1960 um, per pupil um, adjusted for inflation but our test scores have pretty much um, flatlined and so it's time to see maybe we can do something different here um, while still supporting families, students, and the teachers as well as one whole community. Because that's kind of the thing with school choice is that I see it as a as a pro-family policy because you're putting the parents in charge of an education that is their child. And parents know their child best, as you mentioned. And also they know like what teachers are going to um, break through and kind of ignite that spark um, for the learning that they hope to see um, for their child to find their passion. brought it up let's just go there though part of the problem here is and we just there was headlines this morning i was just reading another piece we are having massive teacher shortages in this country matt like like crisis level teacher shortages this isn't just affecting kids we are pumping more money than ever in the schools it's not just the kids that aren't getting a good proper education out of it the teachers are getting burnt out and don't want anything to do with it and it's getting harder and harder to get quality people into the in-classroom positions why is that? Because that's part of the disconnect, too. I know we want to focus on the kids, but, you know, I don't want public schools to be bad. I don't want them to fail. I want them to succeed. I do want school choice, but I still want the best public schools we can possibly have. And we need to have both. Yes, if sir. we don't have good quality teachers, none of this is going to work. Right. Yeah, exactly. And the reason that we're not going to be able to have access to um, high quality teachers or this a lot of teachers leaving the profession right now. Um, there's various reasons. One of those reasons that I can think of off the top of my head is that we have increased this funding. Um, I know Ed Choice um, did a, a study called Back to the Staffing Surge by Marty Lucan, I believe. And they showed that our increase in spending from 1992 to 2016 was about 27%, but teacher salaries actually got cut 2%. And so the money that we're putting into the system is never actually reaching the teacher or the student. Instead, it's going into other administrative roles um, that don't directly affect the students' learning. And teachers, while I think they, they deserve to be valued, um, I think ed choice, or school choice, um, for that matter, is actually a better way to value um, their time and their expertise. 
Uh, think of Arizona, for example. They just created this universally um, expanded education savings account. Um, for those who don't know, an ESA is kind of like a voucher program, but it allows parents to use it on not only private school tuition, but also other online uh, curriculum resources, special needs therapies, um, basically any private education expense under the sun. However, this also takes out the middleman. So say a teacher in your local neighborhood um, wants to teach 10 or so kids, they're getting $70,000 and they can spend the money on some of the, the books and resources and, and still get paid a really um, great wage with probably a smaller class size than what they're having to um, deal with in the local public school. You know, different states have different scholarship programs. If you stay in state, you can go to a state school. There's programs like this, but it seems like we want to put more barriers to these types of programs than we want to lower barriers and get more kids in them. It almost feels like the system is working against itself, even with its stated goal. I think that's where people's frustration comes through. I think that's where some of the teachers frustration comes through. And I know it's from to be fair to them, although we bash them a lot. I know it's a frustration that legislators and Congress people have in trying to work on the system. Yes, exactly. And the thing is that the. the some, one of the saddest parts is that who this affects most is going to be um, lower income families and, and their children because higher income families and their children are able to make a school a school choice, if you will, just by buying a house because they're going to be assigned to um, the nicest public school if they have a, a house that is um, in a wealthier neighborhood. While families who can't afford it are going to be assigned to this failing public school that's not only failed them, but it's probably failed their parents and their grandparents um, for decades now. And so the families that are able to have access to the nicest public school are also going to be able to have access to um, private schools because lower income families can't pay twice for their public school education and their private school. It's just too tough. It's a tough burden on any family for that matter to pay um, twice for both a public school and a private school tuition. So why don't we, oh, we take down this barrier and open up this opportunity and level the playing field um, for these lower income families? And I think this is something that just makes sense um, for us to do. And I don't know why we don't continue to do that as West Virginia and Arizona have done. Yeah. And if you doubt what he's saying, just go on Zillow or any other real estate website. Look at the first item that's right under the price. It's always the school district without mm -hmm. exception. It's just the selling points, how it works. Cooper Conway bringing let's let's round this off by going back to where we started religious schools. I we we did a piece on this show a while back where they argued that things like freedom of the press and religion actually have to go together because those are the institutional bulwarks of a stable country. The freedom to worship how you want to and a press that can hold people accountable. Okay. Is the press our news media? I don't know that they're doing a great job of covering educational issues right now. And then you throw the religious aspect on top of it, which is to their, to be fair to them, always hard to cover in a pluralistic society is the debate and the discourse and the news media coverage of religious schools, just not where it needs to be to have a fair hearing for people. I'm not talking about the persecution people talk about online just because somebody doesn't like their view, but I do think we need to change how this conversation is being had. Do we do that with terminology? Do we do that with the tenor of the conversation? How do you think we improve how this issue is covered going forward? Yeah, I think that's a, I mean, that's a question that could be had really at large is trying to understand someone else's beliefs. Um, personally, I'm not Catholic. I'm not Jewish. 
Um, but I, it would take a while for me to go in before, you know, I criticize their schooling methods because I don't really understand um, their viewpoints or, or religious beliefs. And I think that that's something that journalists particularly should try and do um, before they write, you know, a hit piece or something like that on these schools because they have different views and practices towards um, marriage, for example, if you will. So I think that's something that's a good place to start. And um, I think that can be had both from people that are, are consider themselves secular, but also um, religious as well. And then if we're able to at least kind of extend this olive branch and, and try and make peace with another person's beliefs and say, you know, I don't necessarily agree with you, but I'm going to let you practice how you want. Um, that's going to go a long way. Yeah. The eternal struggle in America is where do my rights start and your rights stop? And that's just this is a great extension on that age old argument, something we need to be very cautious of and we also need to be respectful of and it's something we just got to work out as a society cooper conway great stuff as always buddy let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you until we get you back again yep you can follow me on twitter at cooper conway one and then you can see um all my writing and uh, media pieces on the young voices website with my headshot um over over the top of it so um thank you so much for having me i appreciate it as always He's the one with the glasses and the hair. You'll know what I'm talking about if you're not watching us on the YouTube. You're a good friend. I always enjoy having you on. Let's do it again. Not make it so long next time, buddy. Talk soon. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you, sir. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.